1996, author David Foster Wallace released his magnum opus, Infinite Jest, an 1,100-page post-postmodern takedown of the great American novel. It was a smash success all throughout the world. Unfortunately, it just wasn't very good. Famously dense and nigh unfinishable, the book earned a backlash as great as its praise. Join me, Jesse Dram, as we untangle this tale of boredom, addiction, and French-Canadian separatists in our quest of understanding on the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. Because it's the jest. It's infinite. Infinite jest. Hello and welcome to episode four of the I Hate Infinite Jest podcast. I am your host, Jesse Dram, your guide through this begrudging book tour. It's episode four, pages 95 to 121. Our guest this week is Ven Melser. I met Ven Melser in a Facebook argument where he said this is his favorite book. And I said, well, fuck you then. He said, give it a try. And I said, don't be nice to me. I know your tricks. And now I'm doing this podcast and it's at least 80% his fault. Um, We're getting some attention out there. Sorry this episode's a little late our our guest had to push back a few days plus there is the added thing of uh right now being based here in philadelphia and there are explosions outside my window all the time yes as if a quarantine reeny woony wasn't enough we now have nationwide worldwide it was over in england protesting the death of george floyd police brutality etc and the ilk uh this is I'm technically recording this on like the blackout media day. I'm I'm sorry I was late. I couldn't I couldn't go any longer. But yeah. Black Lives Matter and uh I find it very odd if you somehow found your way to this podcast and that was the thing that was going to God, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Here I was in the deep south just loving cops and loving myself some post postmodern fiction by the great DFW, when all of a sudden you had to go and make it political. I don't think this any of this is funny. I haven't been on stage in too long. I don't know. This is a lot of shit going on. I noticed we're getting some uh, accolades for the Infinite Jest podcast. Let's see if I can read here. Reddit user Joesbro23 wrote, I saw this plugged here a couple days ago on, on the Infinite Jest subreddit. I've listened to all the episodes and I think it's great. Check it out and support the adventure. Thank you, Joesbro23. You are a god and a scholar amongst men. Um, also, great feedback left here by Bert G on Twitter. He simply left a video entitled, How to Get Rid of Vocal Fry. Ouch. Yeah, I have always been... <laughs> I am very sorry for the state of my vocal fry. As you can hear, I am capable of talking without vocal fry, but it is very, very far from my natural raspy voice, smoked cigarettes for ten years, garbage tone. So, I am going to do my best. I'm sorry, you're not going to like this episode, because Ven is a raspy, raspy fella themselves. So... Oh, and here one, here's one, Sean on YouTube left a confusing series of comments. First one, this podcast is amazing, I just binged the first four, love Infinite Jest, love the guests, you were there. 
If you don't see this through to end, it'll be such a bummer. You got a good thing going here. Awesome. I'm very glad about that. Thank you. Oh, but but he keeps going. Yeah, Sean on YouTube keeps going. I was just kidding about the you're there part. You're growing on me. I'm also funnier than you, and coincidentally, a 30-year-old recovering alcoholic living in Brighton. So let me know when you want me to do an episode. Mr. Sean, from YouTube, I will have you on the podcast. But guess what? Before you're allowed to say word one about Infinite Jest, you better believe we are doing a joke-off first, alright? I will not have my funniness question. It's time to put your funny where your mouth is. We're, we're going to take this down to the Civic Center. 13,000 empty seats. It's an empty arena joke-off. Yeah, I have just have a note here in my notes that says, cut a wrestling promo, but it's laid out. And again, there's explosions outside my window. Um, yeah, a lot of people in recovery love, love this book. I mean, is that it? Am I not liking this because I'm still in the active era of my alcoholism? Which I will no doubt look back on fondly before I sober up and lose all my creativity. Yeah, a, a good chunk of my family is sober. I think I might just need them, get them to read it. Maybe I'll have my mom's chapter of AA all read a section and get their opinions. You know, surely those, uh, middle-aged bikers of South Jersey will enjoy the wit and witticism and appreciate all the gritty detail and goings-on at the Enfield Tennis Academy. Anyway, yes, but so when, we will have you on the podcast, Sean, drop us a line, let that be a lesson to you. If you want to get on a show you like, find an insecurity of the host and poke it. That's how I got on The Price is Right all those years ago when I sent a letter to Bob Barker saying he only supported neutering animals because he wanted all them dog testicles for his private collection. Yeah. Not putting my biggest joke foot downward, but uh, I will take on Sean in a, in a post, post-modern jerk-off joke-off. And uh, I've said my shit, alright? You've waited long enough for me. Next one, it should be, I'm going to try to have these up on uh, Sundays from now on, Sundays or Mondays, but we'll see, we're getting deeper, we're making headway, so here we are, again, pages 95 to 121, part 4, with Ven Meltzer. Okay, and we are recording uh, our episode today, pages... Five to twenty-one, and our guest is Ven Melker. Ven, how are you doing? Oh, Melser. I mean, uh, like almost Melser. like Melser, but with like a uh, yeah, like an S C. Okay, I've always been hard with uh, well, hard. I've always been confused with the hard and soft C's. So, Ven Melser, my mistake. Uh, it actually ties in because you're the first person I'm having on this show that I have not met personally you and i met arguing about infinite jest in somebody else's facebook thread so yeah, i believe it's actually uh katu who uh was yep. she on here last week i haven't got a chance to check out the new episode she was on the last episode you're probably not gonna like it because we just ragged on it the whole time but it was a lot of fun i thought <laughs> that sounds like katu yes it does all right uh Elster, tell us Tell us about yourself. How are you? Where Where are you coming from? You got anything to plug? From New Jersey, just some random guy who's a big Infinite Chess fan. And uh, I'm not sure if you can hear my dog barking, but big dog fan. Uh, okay, nothing big, to plug. We're, we're big dog fans here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
they said nothing to plug. Uh, I'm just. Oh, that's why she's barking. There's another dog outside. Uh, I'm. I'm just a very big eclectic Infinite Jest fan. I read it when I was like 17 and have loved it since. Okay, so what what exactly led you to it in the first place? I feel like everybody has their own kind of entryway to this book, particularly uh, as young as you were, 17. I didn't give this a try until I was in my early 20s. That was when it found its way to me. So I find that's the case with a lot of people. I, I ended up reading it for kind of a, a silly reason. So I used to be a fan of John Green when I was like, when I was like 14 or something. Okay. And as a fan for a couple of years, and in one of his videos, he mentioned liking David Foster Wallace. And so I was like, who's that? And kind of Googled him. I thought some of his quotes were interesting and didn't quite understand the description of the premise of Infinite Chess. I was like, so it's about a tennis school or <laughs> <laughs> which, which is like. That's the only, like, like, that's everybody's response to the premise. Is it, right. like, wait, wait, so, like, I, I don't get it. Like, there's drugs, but it's a tennis thing, and... Right, so, like, like okay, it's, about- it's, it, it, it's Degrassi at a tennis academy. I th- uh, okay, I'll, uh, sounds weird, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, like, so, so I ended up, be, like, buying it as losing interest in, like, YA novels. So it was kind of nice to find it at the time because I was starting to get like skeptical about John Green and that whole circle of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I out. <laughs> it's more so mine. She absolutely loves other animals and people. And when she cannot play with them, she gets like, like, she gets, like, sad. She'll whine at me and be like, why can't you take me down to meet this random dog I don't know? I know there's a pandemic. I mean, of course she doesn't. But, like, it's like, there's a pandemic, but why can't I meet the delivery guy with the food? I think we all feel that way a little bit. I miss I miss very casual 30-second friendships as well that you make out in the world when it's not on fire and diseased. That That is true, uh... I, I do miss, like, that brief, oh, like, that's a nice car when you're talking to the delivery guy or, like, you, you know, you're when you, whenever you just talk to, like, a store clerk or anyone, really. Mm-hmm. And now you're more or less holding the gum point, telling them to leave it at the end of the driveway and don't look at me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, essentially. It's like, listen, I haven't showered in a week and I'm in my yeah. boxes. <laughs> just leave it this there. This is much pretty- this is as much for your protection as mine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I am the... a literal pile of trash at this point. Like, smell and oh, yeah. all. I went the first uh, two months of quarantine without deodorant. I'm pretty proud of it. I wanted it added to the record book somewhere. Girlfriend didn't mind somehow. I don't know. Maybe her nose doesn't work. <laughs> it's that, that, that sexy musk. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so you read it at 17, and you said at first it didn't really grab you, right? Yeah, so at first I was like, this is kind of interesting, and I like the use of vocabulary and stuff, but it, it, it like, took me a second. Mm -hmm. Um, And then around that time, I was having some mental health issues and went into the psych ward, and then, um, like, uh, outpatient therapy type deal, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't like the last time I, I, I had my, my like had psych like um, psych issues, but at mm-hmm. that time being like my first time in there, I really started to relate to Hal. Um, okay. I was also doing like I was uh, fencing like five hours a day, six days a week. Oh, wow. um, yeah, like I was I, I relate to him a lot because I was. I was always an avid reader. I was fencing like an insane amount. Um, I had just started smoking weed and it felt like my only escape from all that. Like, like just the character as okay. a whole, I related to a lot. And when I was in that mental state, like how like how made me feel less alone, you know? Right. Um, like, yeah, it sounds like it hit you on a, a lot of very specific pressure points right there. That's kind of amazing that you would even have that much like it would have to be specifically at that point in time for you to relate to that that much going through it you know needing that kind of i was also applying to to colleges at the time which you know reading the first chapter right obviously like and that's where it hit me it just the the like next like two or three parts took me a bit to to kind of um get through okay i I will say that as i got closer to the end Uh i started reading it faster not just because i was used to his like writing style that is part of it Mm -hmm. but uh you know how you're saying as as it goes on you're seeing more of that like prose like writing yeah we were discussing before we started recording how uh, as the book is going on it's feeling a little less mechanical and when the writing is mechanical it doesn't feel as obtrusive just because there's more there's more general prose going on as opposed to the beginning where it's a it's a real hard hill you got to go get over those first like 60 or so pages i'd say and i think part of the reason for that is he's Jade Foster Wallace is like a really big fan of Pynchon. So a lot of his writing is very dense like that, kind of like in an attempt to to like not directly copy, you know, like a pastiche to, to do like a pastiche work. Gotcha. Um, okay. And due to that, like certain parts will be very dense, but whereas pretty much every line out of a Pynchon novel is like some beautiful metaphor. He's mm. trying to do that, and it, it it doesn't come out in that same voice. Right. Uh, like, I, I remember reading The Crying of Lot 49 and thinking, wow, this, like, AA for lovers kind of reminds me of, like, a mixture of uh, the UHID and Infinite Jest and a couple other parts of it, like, with the nature of obsession and all that. Uh, okay yeah Pinchon has been somebody who's come up a lot as i've been just doing my research here i think i might actually look into some of him after this uh gotta be honest though when i'm done this book i'm a big dostoyevsky fan and i just got a new translation of brothers karamazov for me that is like the big ice cream sundae that is waiting for me at the end of this book like just uh just 200 year old russian man take me away please but you know, right it's just as based off the brothers Karamazov, right? He says that I don't see it. I mean, I know. I mean, there's a little bit of fathers and sons here. 
Uh, I'm not exactly seeing a stinking Lizavetta poking her head up, but I've heard that. I'm hoping it's going to reveal itself a little bit more. When you get more into up until this point, I, I don't. I feel like they haven't gone too much into Mario and Orin yet. Right, and, like the the literal end of today's episode is we're ending right before uh, Mario and Candenza's only remotely romantic experience ever. That'll be in the next episode. So yeah. And so, like, as that goes on, you can kind of see the relation better just due to having more exposure of that the actual relationship between all of them. Um, and you also get um, you get th- there's a lot more of of himself that mm-hmm. comes up. And honestly, some of some of the parts he is in are are like, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful scenes. Oh, yeah. My f- my favorite scene is him talking Don Gately in like the mid eight hundreds. Okay. Definitely not there yet. The only thing I know is coming up in a few episodes where, um, himself's father, James and Candenza senior, his chapter where he's talking to his son. That's the only one I've had a guest specifically request. Like, let me do that episode. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. It's an absolutely amazing chapter. Um, the whole kind of drunken rambling of it is very, I want to say there's like a very joicy in um, detachment of all the dialogue. Okay. And it's like very stream of consciousness more so than a lot of other parts because it, and it really does give you that feeling of like a drunk man just rambling on. But um, I also think there, there's some really good quotes and like interesting wisdom at, in, in it. Okay, well, maybe we get a little further into the book. I'll definitely have you back. We could talk about some of those. For now, let's uh, let's crack in here. So, starting page ninety-five in our particular pressing, the the sea green and sky blue pressing. I, if I had the book with me, I'd look up which one it was. But so. Here, uh, we join Hal and a bunch of sweaty young boys in the locker room. It is 4.40 p.m., their muscles taut and rigid and glistening after an arduous day of tennis. A gym coach struggling with a secret peeks at them behind a set of blinds. Never mind, that's some bullshit I put in there. Uh, We find Jim Trolsch, who we last saw feeling very ill with his fever dreams of floors and teeth along with Pemulus and Canadian John Wayne is also there. Uh, First line I really pick out here, it's a quote, Ortho Slice and John Wayne seem less fatigued than detached. They have the really top player's way of shutting the whole neural net down for brief periods, staring at the space they took up, hooded in silence, removed for a moment from the connectedness of all events. Yeah, I just really, I just very much particularly like that line. I actually very much envy people who can just uh, shut down their processing like that and rest for a minute. <laughs> I, I feel like there's, um, now I was never at that level at fencing for reference, but mm-hmm. there, there is this experience where like when you have worn out your whole body completely, you just like, like other people turn into like background characters. You are right. just wholly concentrated on the fact that your body can pretty much not move. And if it does, it just feels numb. Right. I feel like the 
the layman's version of that that I feel like everybody gets to a certain degree. If you've ever like moved apartments all in one day and there's just like that exertion of like the truck needs to get back. It's, uh, I'm saying this because I just moved in three months ago. It's still, it's still fresh in my brain. But just that that contentedness of bodily exhaustion that we really take for granted if you don't get it very often. And just how the world yeah. kind of melts. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do like how he phrases that because one thing I find uh, Wallace does a lot is will take something completely mundane and give a very interesting and sometimes um, prosaic description to it. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like a lot of people have, to some degree, had at least once a moment like that. And, but it's it's just something that is not, um, not directly spoken about. Right. Like, sometimes all an experience really needs, because I, I feel like that's an experience everyone has had, but you need, like, that poignant description thrown at you to actually appreciate the moment you were in. Because at the moment, you might not have been processing any more than, whew, I sure am tired right now. But then to actually read that afterwards, like, okay, that fits me like a warm blanket. Okay. (laughs) I feel like sometimes infinite jest can be like an exercise in Mm self-awareness. There's like, uh, there are a lot of parts of it where it's kind of like just introspective during times you otherwise wouldn't think that. Right. Um, Something I really like about this chapter, um, and that I actually marked it on my first read-through for, is there's a line, and I have to find it specifically. I think it's on 112, but I could be wrong. Um, Where they talk about... Oh, okay. So, here it is. Um, And this isn't the whole thing, but he essentially... uh, Well, that's the point. How can we be friends? Even if we all live and eat, shower, and play together, how can we keep uh, keep from being 136 deeply alone people all jammed together? And he he continues to go into how, like, the, the coaches purposely put all this strain and pressure and annoyance on them and are purposely dicks just because they know otherwise they have n- like now they have a common enemy but otherwise they're all competing against each other yeah i wrote that down too where uh how he really gets into the impossible like the whole thing here is it's supposed to be bonding being friends but like everybody in that room is ranked or trying to be ranked so the people you are trying to commiserate with to bond with you are also actively trying to unseat them in a zero-sum game and just how claustrophobic that must be so you need the common enemy of the instructors Uh, otherwise it's just pure you know Machiavellian sniping at one another to unseat the uh, your closest friends apparently <laughs> exactly and and if you notice uh by the way I'm sorry if I say that a lot I have a like a shit ton of weird little ticks in the idiosyncrasies <laughs> um but uh that I uh, the the one character who doesn't take part in this discussion or this scene despite really like despite the fact that he's there is um john wayne Mm -hmm. uh 
because he's he's supposedly the number one. He's supposed right. to be kind of like like I feel like like he's there as the example of I am I'm the unreachable. There's there's I focus not on these people but on myself. Right, and I think they describe him in there that like at this exact point he's number two. Uh, for the 18s, almost certainly number one after the upcoming Whataburger thing. And I think they also mentioned there the big buddy, little buddy system they have set up there with the older ones taking care of the younger teens, taking them under their wing, that for John Wayne is the most sought after big buddy in that entire thing, that like kids have to sign up and win him by lottery to get him to be their mentor. Yeah, and it's 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 kind of made clear throughout that he is, he's a very solitary player. Um, you, you see that, like, I mean, there, there's, there's other things about him. You could, you could make an argument that he's, um, that he's like quiet and to himself for a number of other reasons as the Mm -hmm. book goes on. But I, I'd like to think part of that is, to to keep that like um i want to say that level of like concentration Mm -hmm. um almost like to a point of navel gazing okay okay now i i get that i still don't know that much about john wayne because i'm not there yet but we do te- need to take a little sojourn for a second, just because we're talking about some great lines we like here. However, there's a line in this section that has haunted me since I first read this book. Uh, I find when it comes to fiction, the first 100 pages are very important, because if right around page 100 you haven't really liked it yet, this is the part where you start thinking, what the fuck am I doing reading this? And yeah. for me, the line right here, nearly 100 pages in, quote, John Wayne, as do most Canadians, lifts one leg slightly to fart. Like the fart was some kind of task, standing at his locker, waiting for his feet to get dry enough to put on socks. I understand that's a joke, but the first time I read that, I had so not enjoyed anything yet. And just, oh my god, I hated that line. to To the point where when I first made the video announcing this podcast... I described the book as being about tennis and Canadians' farting habits. It stuck with me that much. I don't know uh, how much more that comes up. I know Steep, uh, yeah, Steeply farts a lot, but he's the American, so that doesn't count. But whew, that one really took me out of the book the first way through. Um, there's, it's one of those lines that. I also don't think is that funny, but now that you're reading it aloud, it's funny to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it's odd placement all around. I'm, I, I don't know. We're meeting the kids, I guess. And this is, a, this is something I know about John Wayne. Number one, lifts a leg to fart. Yeah. Strong, um, strong, silent, but deadly type. So something you got to remember is before this was edited, it was actually like 1500 pages. So God, there's a lot of stuff in it that like seems a little out of place. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the great things about its length is that 
in any book, there will be at least one thing that's kind of out of place. But there's so much to this that, like, you know, you might see a description you don't like, but then three sentences later, you're you're learning about, like, the internal organs of, like, an aardvark or some random fucking thing. Right. And, like, like no. Yeah, like, the next thing that comes up after this is they're talking about their classes, and I guess this just kind of shows how important entertainment is in their world, but they're talking about a very important uh, exam they have coming up that's all about how uh, film cartridges work and discussing cathode guns and UHF picture quality. Like, that's, that's the main thing they talk about for a few pages leading into this. Yeah, it's it's something that when I was first reading the book, it was it was like it was confusing till I finished it mm-hmm. because not even till I finished it. I'd say it's confusing till a few hundred pages in because once you start to learn more about himself, which comes up within the next like like the, you 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 get some good scenes with him in the next hundred or so pages. Um it's it's you see like why there's so many classes like that there mm-hmm. okay okay there's also some of like Hal's assignments you get to read too and even the classes that are like not about like for instance the technology behind these things like he has there's a point where you get to read his essay on like Hawaii Five O versus a different police procedural sitcom type show. Or not was it sitcom, Chips? But... Was it Chips? <laughs> I'm just trying. I'm trying to think of ones chips. from the time of the Hawaii Five O. Sorry, I interrupted for no reason. There, my bad. No, no, it's fine. I'm trying to remember too. I, I think it's like. I, I think it was one of the procedurals where. There were like it was like a buddy cop procedural. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm having a hard time remembering exactly. But mm-hmm. but basically it's like him going into the the philosophy of it and the effect of shows like these on America and why they were created during that specific time in America and so on and so forth. And okay. yeah, it's kind of an interesting look at like Okay, so a lot of these classes are media focused, but this is like an actual, like, if I read a student at 17 who wrote this, I'd be like, he is really well educated. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I'm, I, I like knowing that that's coming down the, the pipe there, because, you know, they kind of hint at some of his stuff. I believe it's actually the very first chapter where they're talking about some of the essays he wrote. So it's nice that we're going to get to delve into them a little bit there. Um, I have a note here that the boys give Hal a series of nicknames, such as the Halster, Halorama, Halation, which I actually, that's such a small detail, but I like it a little bit because it's the first time these kids actually feel like kids a little bit, just because, I don't know about you, but I remember middle school and high school, uh, a lot of the communication was primarily in just like, you know, Weird, like that. That comes from uh, SNL. Rob Schneider's character, like you know, making copies, the Jonester, and like, yeah. Most of my middle school and high school, we just spoke to each other in Austin Powers and wrestling quotes for all four years. Yeah, and you can kind of see, like, 
it's it's not just how like they uh they, they also do that for Hemulus in this scene. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, they remark that Pemulus and Hal are, are especially close throughout the book. And I think this is like a good example of that because those are the only two that get nicknames. Like you, you don't see them going like, and of course everybody else has their own thing, like Slice is Darkness, but the only ones mm-hmm. getting like silly, ridiculous nicknames in this situation uh, rather than like, you know, postal weight. <laughs> right. Wait, which one was Postal Wait? I that came up. I could not pick out who it was they were talking about. Um, it's one of the three uh like younger kids in the big buddy system. Okay, okay. Yeah, and his last name is like Postlewatt or something like that. Oh, all right. Or like Postlewait or so- something along those lines. It's weird, and so that's his his nickname is Postal Wait. Um there's there's uh, another thing that's interesting about this chapter that I don't think we've discussed yet, too, is um, Merith and Steeply. I think this is one of their first introductions. Yeah, this is the second time we meet them. The first time we meet them, it's really just a lot of details of, uh, you know, Steeply looking ridiculous and he has cockeyed tits. And they discuss that Merith is a double, triple, possibly quadruple agent pretending to pretending to pretend but we do get into them a little further here um let's see yeah i have uh, they're arguing about epic historical romances they're just hanging out on the hill in tucson at this point Marath in his wheelchair steeply, steeply still dressed as a grotesque approximation of a woman yeah what did you uh, what did you want to say about this section so i have to double check the specifics if you hear my dog whining my mom just got home and she sees her um so so one of my favorite things actually about this area um with the whole legendary loves is there's a very specific reference here he says uh kafka and that poor girl afraid to go to the post box for the mail Mm -hmm. and that's actually a very interesting and specific reference. Um, there's like this old, like nobody knows if it's a confirmed, like if it's true or not. The, there aren't a lot of historical sources on it. Um, this old story about Kafka, and that's a, a little bit before, like a couple of years before he died, he was walking through mm-hmm. his through a park, which was like his daily routine. And he saw a young girl crying because she lost her doll. So he looked all over the place, tried helping her find it, and they couldn't find it. And he said, but don't you know, she's she's on an adventure. She's traveling the world. And actually, she's been sending me letters telling me about her trips. And so there was like a period of time where he was sending her fake letters from the doll oh god okay and, yeah and so the the little girl legitimately thought the doll was traveling all over the world and these were you know like letters from the doll mm-hmm. um and then i i believe it ends with with kafka getting her a new doll that looks different with a note saying you know 
travel has changed me, but I promised I'd come back or something like that. Wow, that's um, amazing. Is that from one of his, is that from his novels or his diaries or like, I understand why it'd be tricky to pick out. Cause if I, if I recall correctly, he, all his success was pretty much posthumous, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, most of it was, he was, uh, uh, he was an anarchist and a womanizer and also a German Jew, um, like 10 years before the Holocaust. So Oh, I, 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 I thought I, I thought you were going to say an anarchist and a womanizer and a German Jew ten years before it was cool, but Holocaust <laughs> is just as good, I guess. I no, I did not say that. I did not say the Holocaust is as good as anything. It is bad. I will edit this. Sorry, you were saying? <laughs> yeah. Um, no. So basically, a, a lot of his his work was kind of um, ignored at the time, but. Once his his various letters and journals came out, they published both that and and some uh, work that I, I believe I think his novel didn't come out till he died. He only had one novel, uh, mm-hmm. but I could be wrong. Like again, don't quote me on this stuff. Well, I, um, I, I from what I recall, I believe he left instructions for his sister to burn all his writings, and she just read through it and went against his wishes and you know metamorphosis became gigantic and now we remember kafka and the time he (laughs) tricked the poor little girl about her lost doll saying that she went on a trip without her so i mean it is kind of sweet though like i very much enjoy that It, it took me a little bit to like find out what that was about but um I, I do think it's kind of interesting that he included that, especially because he, I don't know if he ever directly said it, but I get the vibe that Kafka was one of um, his favorite authors. He referenced him a lot and taught classes on him. Yeah, Kafka Kafka's one I have not read much of. He's, he's definitely going to find his way onto my, you know, to-read list in the near future. Um, but yeah, I see one of the, when they're discussing the, uh, back with Marath and Steeply, when they're discussing the romantic loves, the, the big argument, they're having a very, uh, waiting for Godot type conversation here, which might be their entire purpose. Again, I haven't read this book the whole way through. I don't know, but they're having very much a argument where Steeply is very much arguing for love as a grand purpose. And Marath is arguing patriotism. And one of the big things they point out there is Steeply's making the argument like, well, think of, you know, uh, how Lancelot went to the ends of the earth for Guinevere and uh, Helen of Troy in Paris, which Maraith immediately shits on and says, like, no, Helen of Troy was the excuse. The excuse the Greeks attacked Troy for excessive sea tolls. It had everything to do with commerce and nothing for love. And I like the argument against you. I have a quote here from Maraith. Uh, what you wish to sing of as tragic love is an attachment not carefully chosen. Die for one person. This is a craziness. Persons change, leave, die, become ill. They leave, lie, go mad, have sickness, betray you, die. Your nation outlives you. A cause outlives you. So Powerful. that that's actually... I, I very much like this, this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find a specific quote in it, and I forgot if it's a part of... If it's in this part or the continuation of the discussion, mm-hmm. but um, th- there's a point where he says something uh, along the lines of like, maybe you don't choose what you get to love. Maybe and and he he uses the example of like Muhammad in the temple. And he's like, maybe mm-hmm. the temple came to Muhammad. Maybe 
like, like maybe we don't have a choice and whatever we choose to, or whatever we love becomes a fanatical, unchoosing, unstoppable idea to us. Um, and I, I find that especially interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, along with that, I, I also enjoy, enjoy how after he gives that whole, like, uh, that, that whole rant that you had, had said, the, the part mm-hmm. where he says, you know, die for a person, that's craziness. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately, Steve Lee's response is, how are your wife and kids doing up there, by the way? Right. I did I did pick up on that, that right there, as Mraith is repeatedly shooting this stuff down, like, love is stupid, you're a fool to die for love. Steve just kind of throws in, like, yeah, maybe you're right. How's your family doing? <laughs> yeah, which I, I, I think is especially poignant, because this is really where he talks about the whole double agent, triple agent, why he's doing this thing. Right. We're very, we're still not sure of his uh, real, where his loyalties lie. We know his wife is sick and requires money for treatment or so we believe. And he's playing one side off of the other, or is he, or is he, or is he? Um, yeah, he has another, he actually has another response here to Steeply that I wrote down after uh, Steeply asks if love isn't a pure motivation because it's instinctual. Mraith replies, the in, in such a case, your temple is self and sentiment. Then in such an instance, you are a fanatic of desire, a slave to your individual, subjective, narrow self-sentiments, a citizen of nothing. You become a citizen of nothing. You are by yourself and alone, kneeling to yourself. Man, that is some, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's spoken very well, very poignantly, but that reminds me of a lot of 14-year-old, like, you know, what's, it's not even about anything, man. I'm not even saying that as a criticism. I'm saying that as the feeling. I, I feel gross remembering that feeling of just like, yeah, you only love people because it feels good and that makes you selfish still. And and I think that's kind of part of the... the um part of the point of, of that exact line, the whole how's the wife and kids thing is, is just to point out how, how um, jaded and ridiculous Merit's being because right. who would, you, you know, who would become a triple or quadruple agent to get a cure for his wife's sickness. If that wasn't for love, you know, that that's, um, and so I, I think it's very much supposed to be kind of like portraying the difference in philosophy and nationality and mindset um, between these two characters, regardless of what faction they're with. Right. So what we have next, we have the big footnote here, which is all about uh, the Quebecois uh guys losing their legs if you want to take the lead on this and describe this actually my notes on this weren't great all i have is you know uh, a, a chicken a canadian brand of chicken involving young men leaping in front of trains and either surviving or getting their legs cut off which tends to contribute to the numbers of the quebecois wheelchair assassination squad so for reference uh, to listeners, this is actually one of the. It is not the longest footnote. I believe the longest footnote or endnote rather is like twenty pages or something. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, but this is one of the longest at seven pages. Right, footnote three oh four for those out there. 
And it's also not the only time we see it. So in this part, it's actually footnote 45 that refers you to footnote 304. Correct. And the, the, um, a bit, uh, uh, and the reason for that is because it's referenced repeatedly in different parts. I do have an issue with this end note because it's done in a really weird format that it's yeah. like the description of an essay of a college student who we don't know if he's like plagiarizing this or not, but. Uh, essentially, it goes into detail about the various cults that popped up um, as Canada uh, gained its its interdependence, I suppose, mm -hmm. the, the term they use, as, as Canada and America and Mexico fuse, and some of them being politically motivated and some of them just being, as, thing, as there became a downturn in Canada, kids wanted a way to, like, you know... To get their impulses out, so um, they 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 talk about not just the the um, uh, assassins did. I have to check the thing. the The name of the the Canadian separatist mm. extremist group, um, Les Assassins de Fital Relance, uh, or AFR. So the 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 primary purpose of this is to go into their origin, but they also go into all these different cults um, and groups in Canada, some of which being political extremists like the AFR, but some just kind of give you like this idea of this like near suicidal mindset of Canadian teens at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like the one cult that's like the cult of the airless kiss or something. I have to double check that too. Mm. I, I skim this footnote every time. I know every time I've read it like eight times because <laughs> they have it in the book that many times. So like the first time yeah. I was like, okay, I'll go through it in detail. And then after that, I was like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. Um, because whereas some of the longer end notes do actually have some interesting stuff in them. This one's kind of just a, a bunch of blocks of text. Mm -hmm. I'm having trouble finding the name, but essentially one of the cults is uh, based around uh, kiss, like uh, two people kiss and have to hold in the air and kiss for as long as possible. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, I remember it now. It's very specifically an endurance test of uh, forcing the carbon dioxide back and forth into one another without ever taking a gasp for air and seeing who can go the longest. Pretty. Yeah, and I believe whoever passes out first is, like, the one who loses. And there's supposed to be, like, a romantic element to it at mm -hmm. the same time. Uh, but, but yeah, sorry for interrupting. Continue what you're saying about that. Oh, no, 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 no. That was it. That, it just set off the memory that I remember that specifically, where I don't think it went as far as, like, taping people together it's actually reminiscent of uh in the previous or two chapter when orin has that vision of his mother's face duct taped onto his own as a helmet while he plays it, it, it is to a degree um what if i remember correctly 
and this is a bit of a spoiler, but I'm going to say it anyway because it ties into the discussion. So I'm sorry yeah, about yeah. this. That's fine. Put uh, it out there. It's, it's also a jest, so you really can't. It's one. Of the, it's like not a book you can really spoil. Mm-hmm. But um, spoil away. There's a chance that Avril had connections to some of these cults. How could you spoil um, that? You ruined the whole fucking book. Oh my god! I'm fucking with you. I'm fucking with you. Sorry. Yeah, but there's uh, you know, there's like this this chance that she has connection to some of these cults. And I could be wrong, but I believe the the kissing one is the one she has the connection to. Um, It's, it's, there's one of the reasons I like the book is as you get deeper in, you like start connecting the dots and you're like, oh, wait, they went to that same school together. That makes sense why this happened and why they were in the same place at this time and why like these two had kids together and why this one didn't and why these two were at the rehab place and, and stuff like that. Like they're all very deeply interconnected. Okay. Yeah. The connections get deeper as they're revealed. Yeah. And that's why this footnote comes up repeatedly or and note rather, uh, because it's, it's one of those things that connects a bunch of the characters. Okay. Okay. Um, Cool. I'm looking. I'm. I'm looking forward to that stuff coming up. All right. Um, okay. So to move on, we are back with the boys in the locker room. Uh, they're having a discussion about the inherent despair of practice and improvement. I really liked a lot of this, and I'm hoping you can uh, give us some stuff. Probably maybe with fencing that you know along with this. Uh, just pretty much just discussion about how every new achievement brings euphoria, but each new plateau you reach is harder to advance from and how every accomplishment has built into it, the pain and disappointment of having to go through the same stress to reach another level. And they go through the three types of people and how they deal with this. There's the despairing type who do not have the humility and patience to hang in there during plateaus only feel long as, uh, feels fine as long as they're in the rapid improvement stage. Next, they list the obsessive type, the type that tries to will themselves through the next phase while only the passage of time will allow that information to absorb into muscle memory. These are the types who end up overdoing it and injuring themselves. And finally, the complacent type who are content with the achievement they've reached but are too content enough that they'd rather improve what they've learned by infinitesimal iotas than move on to the bigger challenges. Eventually, everyone else catches up to them and they are destroyed. I really, yeah, I, I really dig that and what John Wayne's going to go into a bit more here just about the acquirement of skill and what goes into that. Uh, do you have anything from your fencing period that would, when, when it comes to like learning skills and strategies that, you know, that this might apply to? I, I do kind of, um, I, I can relate it to that in a certain way. Um, those three types do exist in reality, and they Agreed. also have direct lines to the characters in this chapter. So, um, if they go into the specifics of each character's life, or not the, the deep specifics, but they go into um, a lot of the characters' current standings mm-hmm. in this chapter, as far as like uh, their skill at tennis. Mm-hmm. And each each, ca- each of those character types gets covered here. 
Um, that whole, you know, trying to keep going till it gets into your muscle memory and then hurting yourself. The amount of people I saw who had like, like, like special wrist things on to make sure they didn't rub any more cartilage off. Like that happens all the time in sports. The, the complacent type, um, which is supposed to be connected to Pamulus in this case. Um, uh, the whole thing that he's the one who's significant, like, I think they even mentioned he's the only one who's not in, like, the tops 64 continentally for 18 and under. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, like, he used to be good, uh, he has, like, perfect lobs, but he can't, like, um... They actually, no, the lobs is a different part, but they, they go into a few parts. He he is infinitesimally good at one part of tennis, but got passed up in every pretty much every other part. Right. Uh, Hal, Hal injured himself on the court and still plays. They talk about his, like, uh, hurt, I think it's hurt ankle mm. or hurt knee. Um, the reason I'm bringing up the specific characters that this relates to is because... You will notice specific people having specific reap reactions. Like these mm -hmm. character archetypes go towards specific personalities, not just like that's how I play the sport. Um, I'm stubborn. I'm a stubborn asshole. I I I was the asshole who did not like doing drills with other people, but you would see me practicing, like doing like um like one person drills for like three hours till I couldn't move my arm anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, whereas there's another person who really liked fencing, but never practiced properly. And he ended up losing most of the bouts we had. And yeah. I refused to practice with him because <laughs> of his complacency. Like, like he was oh, one God. of the main reasons I wouldn't practice with the others because there weren't a lot of FA fencers and this kid was like, like he would like hold the sword out and not move it when you did the drills. Like he just kind of mm. stood there. Um, he didn't take so, any of like the boring parts seriously. So this reminds me of two personal stories. Uh, number one, I, I'm a big fan of billiards, of pool, but I never, I never went through any of the disciplines to like get good at it. Uh, there was a period of time where I was living in San Francisco. And every day I would go to the local bar that had a pool there, and there was a an old Chinese guy who would run the table all day long, and people would come in and sharpen their skills. This guy refused to play against me because he knew I was just there to play for fun, and I just didn't give a shit. And he just hate like I was such a waste of his time that it became a challenge of like how quickly he could beat me every day. And I think he thought he was like, yeah, shows you. It's like I'm having fun, but. Okay, and here I am 10 years later talking about him on a podcast, so yeah. Shout, shout out Jimmy at the Blue Danube in San Francisco. And uh, it, the other thing... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no it's just, it's, it's one of those things where when somebody tries to, like, show you up for not being good, like, in this case, at least in the fencing case, this kid purposely, like was like an asshole about it so i wanted to kind of be like screw off and beat him but then like in cases like that it's like if you enjoy doing it and you're actually like playing every day then 
hey, man, getting beat by that guy who's better is just going to make you learn. Like, it's not making you worse. Exactly. Yeah. Nothing Nothing bad is happening to me from this. Uh, yeah. The other thing, we skipped a little beat they had earlier where uh, the boys are kind of griping a little bit, just pointing out that, like, this probably isn't good work to be happening on the skeleton of, like, a developing pubescent boy. Like, you know, we're all going to end up fucked up with chronic injuries, which really stuck out for me. I had a cousin who uh, was like star football player in high school, but unfortunately he was too good for his own good. Cause he was so good on like a so, so team that had him playing offense and defense. And this was a kid came from like very poor background. Could have very at, at the least could have definitely gone to a college instead got worn down to a fucking nub and was so injured by 18 that he just he never went anywhere and now he's a drug addict and it's so fucking set and what was the ultimate goal of all that a high school football team won a few more games by wearing this one kid down to a goddamn nub and just how ugh. again not entirely uh, related but you know i have a, a friend kind of similar uh similar case um I don't know if he's officially been diagnosed with CTE, but if he doesn't get diagnosed with it at some point, I'd be incredibly surprised. Um, like he has, he has told me like his brain does not work right. He has had too many concussions. And so you'll see him at some points where he will have like, you'll have like this really, um, really interesting discussion with him about cinema or something and he'll be like yeah i really think the way kubrick uses the lighting and the the like centered shots to to um you know in that first person perspective to make you feel really bizarre uh like an interesting choice or something and he'll he'll go into detail about that and then the next day he'll be like who cares about texting and driving and what is a book <laughs> like oh god and, and it's yeah it's, it's it's sad, but it's also like at the same time, it's it's a very clear example of that that change in personality, at least with the the CTE. But also, he put all this effort into football in high school, and now that's the state of his brain. Exactly. What what did he ultimately get out of it? He got even if you look at it at the day when he was at the peak of his promise, all he had was an iota of a chance. Like, hey you might get to be a mega millionaire one day. Don't look at all the broken bodies on the way up that staircase. You might get there. And that's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't fucking, I like how there's well, a lot also, of, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, it, it's also like, the, it's not like it's the player's fault because when this all starts, they're fucking kids. They don't know better. They're like, I'm just getting to play a sport. It's fun. I like the adrenaline. I don't know. I'm going to get like 20 concussions by the end of this. Like, not to mention, dude, when you're a little kid, you can fall down the steps and then run, you know, run a half marathon. Like, you bounce back in such a way that you have no perspective of, like, how an injury accumulates over time. Oh, yeah. And then by the time they're 18 and they've had, like, eight concussions over the course of, like, two years, you know, they're they're still barely realizing it's probably actually making it harder to be self-aware of the damage being done. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I believe they say like scientifically, like the frontal lobes aren't fully developed until you're 25 years old. So if these are kids who are getting beaten out of the sport seven years beforehand, I, 
I mean, it's not even you're not even talking damage at that point. Like they never get to develop to where they would have been to even have that level of comprehension. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's definitely for for, for uh, uh, something that could be considered an American pastime. It's definitely incredibly dark. Oh yeah, very very upsetting. God makes makes baseball and the steroids look pretty pretty you know meager in comparison i would say well let's be honest face uh baseball and anything is me like baseball is meager in comparison to anything baseball yes. is a terrible and boring sport and anybody who says otherwise can like they can come to my house personally and fight me hey listen i agree with you 100 percent. i still miss it very badly right now <laughs> Uh, I'd give I'd give anything for any excuse to just stand in an open air stadium with my girlfriend and just stick hot dogs in my mouth and yell at people wearing the color jersey I don't like. Just good old good old Americana. It's just whenever I've been to a baseball game, all I can think is, so he got to run in a line for a little bit. Cool. When does he get to run again? He oh, earned maybe hey, he, if the other guy hits the ball. Hey, you know what? He earned running that line. He earned running that line so much that a major stat is earned runs average. Okay? He earned that shit. Okay, let's keep going with this fucking book. A um, little bit more on the same subject. John Wayne goes down the virtues of being machine-like. Uh, the whole, uh, and I like that again, talking about how you absorb these things into your muscle memory, the whole idea of repeating these awkward motions. So they become absorbed second nature, you know, paying attention exactly to where your head and pelvis and wrist and racket are now and do it awkwardly until the body does it naturally quote. It's no accident. They say eat, sleep, breathe tennis here. These are autonomical. Accretive means accumulating through sheer mindless repeated motions. Like it. That's what it's all about. I the only real thing I have for that is uh, playing guitar and comedy. I, I I've learned those things. Muscle memory. Nothing too physical. I am I am definitely an indoor boy. But still, good um, things to know. It's. I'm trying to find a specific part because there's def, there's a specific wording in that quote that I like. Um, I think I'm going to start. Good. Uh, I was just going to say, I, 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 essentially, the idea of like it becoming autonomous um, it is really interesting, um, partially because. They, they talk about it in, in, in a few parts, how, how when, you're compul- when you're playing on that, in that compulsive, like, in-the-zone state, it becomes almost this, like, um, Buddhist trance. And I only say Buddhist because that's the examples used in the book. But there is like Shintoist podcast here. God damn it. Don't bring up the Buddha. (laughs) Shinto. Shinto all day. Ishiban. Continue. Sorry. I I have to apologize. Apologize to my (laughs) goddess Amaterasu. You know, got to make sure that. uh... Listen, listen, if I remember correctly, she like skinned Susano. I don't want that shit happening to me. Uh... (laughs) Okay. Uh, but, yeah, so there's, uh, 
they, they talk about this kind of like meditative trance that it puts you in. And it, it does become that at a certain point where you are no longer thinking about what's going on. You are just doing. Um, and, and it does become autonomous. You don't do it because you're thinking about it. Your body starts to, to kind of move on its own. Precisely, yes. With enough training, it becomes feeling rather than thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure as as somebody who plays guitar, you've had moments where you're not even really thinking about playing the song. Your your fingers are just, you know the song well enough that your fingers just start moving. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so to wrap it up here, we started the chapter with farting. We're going to end it with farting. A little buddy asks specifically, what do you do if you desperately need to fart during a match? Moreover, what to do if the fart is possibly more than a fart. Uh, Stice responds, you suffer with the fart. Earn the discipline of holding that gas in your gut. Quote, I make an iron rule. Nothing escapes my bottom during play. Not a toot or a whistle. If I play hunched over, I play hunched over. I take the discomfort in the name of dignified caution. And when it's especially bad, I look up at the sky between points and I say to the sky, thank you, sir. May I have another. And his littles dutifully write down that important life story. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a nice little chunk there. Do not, uh, give, do not give in to the fart words to live by. Um, something that just before we, we finish, uh, I think it's a lot of times the, the like complex writing, the large words, the overall um, density of it. You, you can kind of forget that these characters are teenagers, right? And so I like that part because it, it like brings you back to be like these kids are like sixteen and seventeen. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, uh, I, I don't nothing to say. <laughs> That's fine. We, we, hey, ended it on farts. I see nothing wrong with that. Ven, thank you uh, very much for this. We, this is part four we have gotten through. Pages 95 to 121. We started with farts, and goddamn, we're going to end with farts. Yeah, dude, this was a lot of fun. It was good. It was, like I said, it was interesting having somebody I've never actually met in person on here and having an in-depth conversation based only on, uh, we argued on a Facebook thread one time. Well, it's, it's interesting being on the other end of that too, because, uh, when you messaged me, I was kind of, it took me a second to remember. I was like, Oh wait, yes, this guy argued with on Katu status. (laughs) Yeah, that's me. I'm doing, uh, Lot of, if only all Facebook status arguments could end as well, especially in these days when you know I'm in Philadelphia right now and I've just been hearing explosions outside of my window for three days now. So, a lot of lot Honestly, of Facebook. I... Uh, what? I, I was just gonna say, there's a lot of Facebook arguments spilling into the streets right now. There's there's a Facebook argument I had that I really didn't want it to become an argument. I like made a joke about these baby boomers commenting on a friend's status and they all got really angry about it and posted like, oh, poor millennial want to pacify or something like, or poor Trump hater want to pacify. And I was like, mm. listen, I was joking around. Like, 
I, I really don't care, but I do think that it's kind of condescending to put that there as though I'm saying this because I hate Trump and not the specifics of your views. Right. And they like kept trying to argue with me about it and make these insults. And I was like, wait, aren't you the guys trying to say like us millennials and leftists are too sensitive? Mm. <laughs> you're, you're, the, they're still commenting too. I stopped commenting yesterday. They're still talking about me. It's still going. Oh God. Yeah, I literally, literally when, when I was, when I was setting up for this podcast, I actually got a little distracted because uh, I got a I got a text from my cousin that somebody was being mean to my mommy in a Facebook thread, calling her dumb for saying Trump is a terrible leader. So that was I I was very fired up coming into this, but it it was fun though because when you're fighting with like these very blue collar idiot guys, they're so easy to fuck with. Just like, oh, somebody somebody misses his daddy, and he picked out a man in a suit to say, hug me, daddy. Tell me they're so bad people. And yeah, he doesn't uh, he doesn't care for me, but fuck that guy. There's, uh, Scott, Scott R. Thompson, you'll never listen to this. Fuck you, Scott R. Thompson. You are a loser. That hat makes you look like a dickhead. I'm sorry, you were saying? Um, there's... There's this girl who was posting a status about how, like, she's like, isn't it a bit odd that, or like, it doesn't seem kind of planned that the pandemic is happening in line with all these protests and riots and all this other shit. And I was, and then people were commenting like, yeah, it does seem kind of planned. Maybe that's the point. And I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen, mm. especially Considering, like, a man fucking died and that this is, like, an issue in communities across the country and that the pandemic has killed hundreds of thousands of people. Like, mm-hmm. I, I get the, the urge to look for a reason why all of this is going on. Like, people want someone to blame. They want to go, oh, it's not just random violence and shitty people but some sort of cabal but, um, the, fa- the fact that they're hitting it from every single angle like every <laughs> single side has something they can tack on to the looters like it was George Soros oh no it was white supremacists no it was undercover cops no it was fucking whoever it's like oh well no matter what this is it's all shit that you cannot prove in one way or another but it's a fun little side argument to really avoid the fact that you know, this guy got his fuck got choked the fuck out by a knee on his carotid artery by a guy who did and, not seem all that concerned about it for ten minutes. Oh, yeah, and it's like when people bring up the looting as like a negative thing. To me, it's like, oh, so you think property damage and stolen property are 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 more important than a black man's life, right? Or the the the. Or, or to make that issue known, like it's, I, I, I feel like um, when it comes to stuff like this, there can be that kind of underlying complicit racism from certain people where they don't directly intend to be racist, mm-hmm. but their views do support that kind of, uh, that, that, that um, thought process. Right, that whole, like, listen, if you and people like you had given more of a shit 20 steps before this, 
it wouldn't have escalated to this. Like, that's it. It's here because nobody gave a shit in the first place. And it just kept going. And now that... eh. Anyway, this has been the Infinite Jest Podcast. The Infinite Jest and Looting and Pandemic Podcast. Will we all live to see the end of this book? It sure doesn't feel like it. But, uh... Right, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm just going to quit the recording and you and I can still chat a little more after that. But uh, okay. Yeah. Ven Melser. Thank you so much for coming on here, man. This was great. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, thank you for having me. First time on a podcast. <laughs> there you go. First, first time's the best time. That's what I hope. Good old yeah. infinite, infinite jest podcast, cherry popping here. That's what we, that's our service. All right. I'm going to stop recording now.